Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. Today's episode is part two of the interview with Trevor Owens. Trevor is an author and entrepreneur. He's the co-founder and CEO of Javelin.com, the makers of Quick MVP and Lean Startup Machine. Quick MVP is a service that lets you quickly and easily test business ideas. And the Lean Startup Machine is a workshop that teaches you how to build something customers want and run the right experiments to steer your business in the right direction. Trevor is also the author of the Lean Enterprise book, which details how corporations can apply more innovation and lean startup to launching new products. In episode 61, we shared the story of Javelin.com and how Trevor took an idea and turned it into a business that generates well over $2 million a year. We talked about how he considers himself an introvert, yet he's managed to build amazing connections with people like Dave McClure, Eric Rees, and Seth Godin. In this episode, we get tactical and talk about what Trevor teaches at the Lean Startup Machine workshops. We'll talk about the step-by-step process that Trevor and his team use to help entrepreneurs test their ideas and get their business moving in the right direction. And we'll cover how you can systematically validate your idea and move ahead with confidence. Trevor shares a ton of really valuable insights in this episode. Let's get uh, tactical and and talk about how... Uh, people listening can go uh, about testing uh, a new business idea. And obviously this is an area that you have a ton of experience and expertise with both from uh, having run so many LSM events and having built uh, quick MVP. But, you know, can you kind of walk us through, you know, let's say I have an idea, Right. Yep. And I think this is it. And, and this is going to be a great startup and a great yep. business. Where do, where do I go from there? Yeah. So it's, um, the th- and I think you just described perfectly like almost every entrepreneur right there who just gets started. You know, they have an idea and they think this is it. Right. And, um, inherently there's a, there's a problem with, with that thought in of itself because, um, when you're testing ideas, you have to really kind of, uh, first of all, recognize the unpredictability and uh, just recognize how bad all of us are at, at predicting that something's a good idea versus a bad idea. And also, um, you have to be willing to test a lot of things because every single, you know, I've seen thousands of ideas go through LSM and it's very rare that one is validated right off the bat. And most of them change a lot. They change, you know, and um, they, they change dramatically. I mean, they change customers, they change problems, they, change, they completely change the solution. So you kind of have to just be willing to pivot. And I think that's a, that's, that's a struggle for most entrepreneurs um, from the beginning because they just love their idea and, as human beings, we're, we're biased to love our ideas and just say like, oh, this is the idea. And like everything that the media tells us, um, they've, the media crafts like every entrepreneur's story as if they had this idea and it's something unique about their background that led them to this idea. And it's like their destiny, right? And that's usually not ever the real story. Um, 
you know, almost every, actually almost every successful startup has pivoted. You know, Google, uh, sorry, YouTube started as a dating website originally. The founders were building like this dating website, didn't work, and then they created YouTube. And Twitter started as a podcasting site called Odeo, and they, they changed and did Twitter. Um, Groupon was like an online petitioning or voting website. Um, almost every successful startup has changed dramatically. And the founders uh, were successful not because they loved their idea and just persevered against all the data. Like they just f- figured out something that was working and doubled down on it. Um, you know, and so one of the inherent problems that we have with Quick MVP is that people put a landing page up and and then drive traffic to it and no one signs up and they're like, this tool sucks, you know? <laughs> they're like, no one signed up for my idea and it's the best idea ever, you know? And so um, that's going to happen. That's like a, that's guaranteed to happen to you as an entrepreneur. So you kind of just got to be ready to pivot. Um, and then um, once you can get over that, I think there's a lot of... Um, I have a lo- I have a whole bag of tactics to share with you guys. So, cool. so I was going to say I think that's a really great point about uh, being willing to pivot and and you know I think not falling in love with that idea because the the one thing that I've seen and, and probably I've been guilty of as well is you come up with an idea and you fall in love with it and then you spend all your energy trying to um, convince everybody else that it's a great idea rather than almost you know, doing the inverse of that and looking for people to sort of convince you that it's a bad idea. You know what I mean? If you can almost withstand that, you know, you're onto something. Yeah. Or even just like people to convince you it's a good idea, not you to convince them it's a good idea. Right. Right. Um, Usually the, the common pattern, I mean, another thing people to take into consideration is like as an entrepreneur, you're very resource constrained. So you know, you're not going to, you want to start a product that is filling a gap in the market where no one is targeting it and that people love it to death because that's the only way you're really going to grow. Um, if you're target, if you're just making a knockoff of something and people kind of like it, I mean, in theory, you can make money from something people kind of like, but you don't have many resources to like have a big marketing campaign as an entrepreneur. So you have to like kind of very be very selective about your ideas and pick these things that like are we like to say uh, an addictive drug for your customers because if you find something that customers really want like an addictive drug, uh, then you don't need to have all the resources, you don't need to have the experience, you can make a lot of mistakes and you'll still be successful at the end of the day. Um, so that's that's kind of the second perspective. Okay, cool. So um, you know, just a good sort of warning in terms of don't. Don't kind of fall in love with the idea, but what's what's the next step? Should 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 we go out and start finding customers and talking to them? Yep. Uh, do you guys sort of advocate building the landing page? What's what's the next thing to do? Yeah, so there's three main methods that we teach. Um, the first one is doing customer interviews. The second is pre-selling a product that could be through a landing page. And the third is a technique called concierge, which is where you deliver the product as a service um, after you've got some pre-orders. And um, they increase in opportunity cost and they narrow in scope. So interviews, um, you can do them really quickly and you can learn a lot really fast. And you can pivot uh, pretty, pretty broadly at that point, right? You're kind of exploring things on the customer and problem level. Um, not the solution level. So a big mistake in doing customer interviews is pitching your solution. 
Um, when you do customer interviews, you want to understand who you're talking to, what are their motivations, their goals, um, and what problems do they have, and which which problems do they have that are like really strong pain points. Um, and from there, you can come up with a solution. Um, every entrepreneur, as we mentioned, has a solution as their idea, and so. Um, one of the first steps is just is to try to forget about the solution and figure out what the problem is that you want to solve and then see if that problem actually exists. Because every customer has a problem and every problem has a solution, but not every solution solves a problem. This is why so many startups fail. Um, and not every problem has a customer either. There's a lot of problems out there in the world that exist because nobody is motivated to solve them. Right? They don't affect anybody directly. They may affect society, but they're not a specific problem that a specific person has. Yeah, I've experienced that where you you sort of identify somebody and you perceive them to have a problem and you can already sort of figure out, you know, how this product is going to solve that problem for them. And then when you really talk to some of these people, they're like, eh, you know, it's not it's not that much of a problem, you know? I yeah. I can kind of live I can live with it. Right? And that's also a good warning sign, right, in terms of that, you know, these people are not going to be motivated to, to spend money with you. Yeah. And we, we have some other, some other tricks as well. Like, uh, the basic interview format we call the three point interview, which is where, um, you ask someone if they, what, you know, what problems they have. And then you, the second part is to ask them to tell you a story about the problem because we never want to get, we're not trying to get feedback from customers. We're really trying to get data on them. Like that's kind of the goal of your customer interviews is not to say like, Oh, do you like this like red, you know, car or something like that? It's like uh, you're trying to ask them, hey, like, tell me about the, the last month of your life. Like, what when you had this problem? Where were you? What did you do? Because uh, the data on what they've actually done, you can make predictions off of. Uh, people are very bad when it comes to predicting the future. You know, like every every year, I make a goal that I'm gonna, you know, get in better shape and go to the gym all the time, and then. I never do it, unfortunately. Right. So, um, so, and then the third part of, of, of that is asking people if they had a magic wand, what the solution would be. And a lot of people, when you ask the magic wand question, they're just like, uh, I don't know. And if they say, I don't know, then that's a really negative sign because they haven't even thought about what the solution should be. It's probably not a big problem. And the practice of doing customer interviews is almost like being a private investigator in the sense that you're connecting the dots, you're ne- never no, nothing is like, you know, explicit in terms of this. It's an art. I mean, there's there's techniques to it, but you still have to read between the lines and kind of, uh, you know, almost like tell if people are bluffing or not because, um, you know, people aren't it, people. It's not an exact science. People aren't going to tell you, oh yeah, this is a great business idea, you know, and then you just take that and you're going to be successful. Yeah. Again, I think that's a really good point. It just, just because you do customer interviews doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up with a successful product. Yeah. Right. But, um, you know, a little bit of data is a lot better than no data. So let's talk about pre-selling. What, what's the idea there and what do you teach? Yeah. So after you uh, validate the problem that people have, you want to validate the solution by collecting some form of payment. And that form of payment doesn't necessarily have to be money. It can be um, in the form of people's email address or personal information or even just their time. In fact, you want to collect something from people that's of value to them. 
So for example, if you get, if you talk to the CEO of a corporation and you charge him a hundred dollars, uh, that's probably not really validation that he needs your solution because the CEO of a corporation has a lot of money. So a hundred dollars is nothing to him. If you go to a teenager and you get a hundred dollars from them, that's a <laughs> lot of value because they don't have, you know, any money at all versus, uh, time from a CEO is really valuable. Time from a teenager is not very valuable because they have a lot of time. Um, so you want to collect something of value. Um, and um, when it comes to quick MVP um, and when it comes to uh, this stage, there's a lot of interesting things that you can do that are not obvious. And these are some of the things that we're trying to innovate on with quick MVP is that um, with a landing page, you can actually kind of validate the price of your product. You can kind of validate uh, the customer acquisition cost through Google AdWords, and you can also validate a little bit of the of the of the market size um, because uh, Google has search volumes that are public that are public information, and by taking the conversion rate on your page um, and the search volume, you can figure out how many potential customers I could get in the in the foreseeable future for this. Um, so in the in the uh, the pre-selling phase, you're looking to just get as many people to sign up, give you some type, form of commitment that's of, of value so that if you go and invest all your time and money in building the solution, even though that's on the next, the next step, but let's just pretend for a second that's what we're going to do, uh, that you know they're going to be there as your customers. Um, and it's not just you know them signing up to kind of uh, get you to leave them alone or something like that. So... Um, in this phase, you're trying to validate the solution, and I also really recommend people try to validate some of the some distribution channels um, really early on because um, you know getting to product market fit is the hardest part of the battle, of course, but then distribution becomes the next battle immediately after that. So what do you mean by the distribution channel in, in, in addition to AdWords looking at other ways to reach potential customers? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think of it like if you can find a way to, like AdWords is like a scalable channel for acquiring customers. So if you can, I would rather have um, something that has like a lower margin or maybe like something that people want a little bit less if I knew there was like a scalable acquisition channel that I could target immediately um, than, you know, a little better product, but I don't know how I'm going to get it out there. So if you can, like, on day one, not only figure out something's valuable, but also figure out how you're going to acquire those customers, it's like you just won the lottery, basically. You know, most, uh, you know, founders I've talked to, startups, um, generally the, the, the main distribution channel for most of them seems to be around content marketing. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think content marketing is is great but i but i also think that everything you do is going to be context specific um for some people content might not work at all and it also depends on if you're good at it or not i mean you know i have um um some i have friends that or that are really good at writing blog posts and really good at creating content and even though there's a lot of content already out there on that subject because their content is better they're able to use content marketing as a good channel um but I do think that over the last year, that content has become a very crowded uh, channel. And there's kind of this, this, this uh, rule of like the, uh, the law of shitty click-throughs, I think it's called. I don't know if that's <laughs> the, the exact law, but it's like every marketing channel degrades over time. 
So, you know, nobody was blogging, you know, 10 years ago. But, and so if you had a blog 10 years ago, at the beginning of it, you were getting like a lot of subscribers and your conversion rate was really high. But now over time, there's so much content out there that it's harder to stick out and people have more demands in their time. So that, that distribution channel actually has degraded. And, but that doesn't mean it's degraded for you. So you should always test every channel um, before you decide to go into it. You know, like write a few blog posts, see what the return is, you know, and then do the math out, extrapolate it and compare that to other potential channels. Okay, cool. And then the the third part of the the, the puzzle was the concierge um, product. Yeah. So, what do you teach there? So, concierge is after you validate the solution, actually delivering that solution as a service or as a, a prototype, or basically the most ghetto version of the value that your customers need in order to um, in order to in order to become your customer. So there was one uh, app at uh, the Lean Startup Machine uh, several years ago who wanted to make um, a service that would basically, as a business owner, if you're hiring people, you have a lot of resumes. And it takes you a lot of time to filter those and find who the best candidates are. So they want to make uh, an online site where you upload your resumes and their algorithm would determine who the best candidates are for you, you know, really quickly so you don't have to sort through all of them. And in the pre-sale phase, they got, um, I think, $1,000 in, like, pre-orders immediately, you know, because some business owners, you know, they have a lot of purchasing power. And um, what they did was they actually skipped the concierge. So this is why it's a good example, because they forgot to do the concierge. They started doing the wireframes. And they went back to the business owners and showed them the wireframes, what the product would look like. And the business owners were like, uh, I, don't really, I don't really get this. Like, I thought I was signing up for something else. Like, this doesn't really work for me. And they couldn't figure out how the wireframes weren't right when this is what people were telling them they wanted. Um, so then they took a step back and said, let's do the concierge. The five of us as a team, let's just get their resumes, sit down with them in their office, and then talk to them and figure out how to get the five best out of these stacks of resumes. So when they did that, uh, it, was, it was a very different experience because they sat down with the business owner and they said, okay, so we have all your resumes. Uh, what qualities are you looking for in these people you're trying to hire for this role? And then the business owner goes, uh, I don't really know. Like, what do you think? What do you think <laughs> I should look for? And so the part of the problem they were solving was not just, you know, get the top five resumes out of the stack of 100, but also educate the business owner on, you know, add some expertise in here in terms of who they recommend as the best person to hire. So they never would have learned how important that was to the product if they just skipped ahead and, and built it out after getting people to sign up for it. So, um, you know, the concierge method is delivering uh, whatever your product is going to do as a service, you know, just as like labor, you know, and, and charging them what you would charge for your product and then doing it by hand. And um, a lot of successful startups uh, have used this approach and you know, Eric, I think Eric wrote about a company called Aardvark, which sold to Google, which is like a Q&A service. Um, even, there's also a company that came out recently called Magic, which has been kind of, I guess, blowing up on TechCrunch, uh, where you can, where you can te- send them a text message for anything you want. And it's like magic. And it's a concierge because there's no technology. It's just people, right. you know, it's just the, the co-founders behind the, the phone, like, 
typing on going on Google or whatever and arranging things for you and then charging you for it. And, you know, over time they're going to build out algorithms and systemize that because a lot of times you just, you just can't, there's a couple of things you can't predict that the concierge phase does for you. It helps you figure out, you know, people think they want it, but are they actually happy with the service afterwards or, you know, is the, is it feasible for me to deliver the service for them at the amount they're willing to pay? Um, so you, you figure out a lot of the delivery issues in terms of the product and the business in that phase of it that, you know, you, you would completely miss if you just skipped to, to building the product. Yeah, I love that. Okay. So, um, you know, I think the, the landing page piece of this and, and running, uh, let's say an AdWords campaign to, to test some, you know, some initial demand, um, how much do you recommend that, uh, someone initially spends to, on, on, on their AdWord campaign before they can get to a point where they feel they have enough information? Yeah, this is, this is a highly, a highly, a highly personal question. And it's also a context specific question. So, you know, um, first of all, there's no way to know ahead of time, like what a good, uh, keyword is for your product. Um, one of the ways you can tell is like by just typing in the keywords into Google and seeing what shows up and seeing if the thing that shows up is, you know, kind of relevant to what you're trying to sell. So, you know, if you're doing a, um, a resume sorting app, you know, searching for something about resumes and seeing like some advice or some blog posts on how to, how to sort those um, would be a good sign versus if a site showed up saying where to submit your resume, that would not be a good sign. So I think just playing around with that. And then Google also shows you what the suggested bid is for the keyword. Um, and the bid doesn't really tell you if it's a good keyword or not, because, you know, it could be an, it could be an undiscovered keyword um, because, you know, you're doing a really original idea that no one's ever done before. And so the, the bid is low or there's other businesses or it's really high because other businesses are targeting that keyword and making a lot of money, right? So at the end of the day, uh, it comes down to uh, like what keywords you choose. It comes down to just testing it and trying different things and learning as you go. You know, running several iterations of tests to to figure out which direction to go into. Um, and then you know you don't want to. Uh, it it also depends because like you know some more serial entrepreneurs they'll say like oh I you know who do this like who are doing this before Quick MVP existed. I talked to a lot of people, uh, you know, who did that. And one entrepreneur who is really successful and made a lot of money said, I'd do $5,000 on an idea, you know, $5,000, like to vet it out. Most entrepreneurs don't have $5,000. You know, if you're, if you're a first timer, you're not, you know, willing to just spend that just to test if you should take the next step or not. Right. So I think that you probably, it's probably up to you to decide how much you want to spend per idea and it's, but it's probably going to run you, you know, a hundred bucks to 500 bucks probably to really get enough, uh, traffic to vet it. Now we're not really going for statistical significance here. Um, and in, in lean startup, um, you know, with the exception of like AB testing, if you're an existing business, uh, with customers, of course you want to be statistically significant in that, but, all the stuff that we do in Lean is not in like the pre-product market fit phase is not statistically significant. The reason is because the cost of getting something statistically significant is way too high. And you're not really trying to figure out like 
where the market is today, you're really kind of trying to predict the future. So you're really just looking for, for patterns. Um, and, you know, if you get, let's say you just pay for 10 clicks on Google, um, that might be enough to see if you get one person to sign up or not. You know, if you, if you, if you get 20 clicks to your site from Google and nobody signs up, that might be pretty convincing that either your page is really bad and you need to reword it and you don't really understand the problem you're solving or um, nobody wants it. So all of these uh, success, we call it success criteria in, in our lingo where it's like, what is the minimum validation that you need to continue working on this product? Um, and it depends on your opportunity cost. Um, but it's a really like a judgment based decision because you're operating in a unique context. If you're building an app that's never been built before, there's no industry benchmarks for that app, right? There's no like way to tell like, oh, like five is like the right number. Um, you kind of have to do the math out yourself and, and, and use your judgment. And the, the, the good part is that, uh, this exercise of, of figuring this out and kind of developing your own judgment, you get better at over time, but there's no kind of, uh, you know, easy answer like 42 or something. <laughs> All right. So looking at, uh, you know, build, I think people might listen to this and say, okay, I can build a landing page. Maybe I'm already doing that today. I know how to get an AdWords account and start running, uh, you know, a, a basic campaign. How does quick MVP make that easier or, or, or better? For yeah. I think the, the, our first value proposition is just being easy to use and fast. Um, the average, the average like new Google AdWords user, their first campaign takes 45 minutes to set up. And if you've used AdWords, it's, it's an interface built for marketers. It's not built for this type of thing. So it gives you like a bajillion options. Like AdWords, you know, being, uh, I don't know, it's like $150 billion a year business has the worst UI of any product probably on the internet, <laughs> you know? So we've simplified that UI where it takes like, you know, I was watching our, uh, we use a, a really great app called Full Story, um, by the way, which is pretty new, um, where it takes your uh, mixed panel events or, you know, your, your whatever, your, uh, your events that track what your user does in the app, and it turns it into a movie where you can, you can watch your customers like uh, as like they, do, you know, simulates their mouse moving and clicking on the different buttons and how they use your app. And I was you know, the AdWords part of QuickMVP is the most complex part of our technology. And I'm watching people like how they're, how they're using the app. And like people will spend several days just like tweaking the copy on their landing page, you know, like obsessively. And then when they go to place their ad, it's like literally like, I don't know, like 30 seconds. It's like less than a minute where, <laughs> oh, sorry. There's a, there's, can you hear that in the background, the uh, truck? Yeah, I can. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> like, um, okay, I think we're good. So, you know, it literally takes people less than a minute to launch an ad using Quick MVP, which to me was really sad because we put most time into that feature. But, but uh, you know, if you were going to use AdWords, it's it's a really complicated process. And then what we help you do after that is manage uh, every iteration of the idea. So we we give you all the data. You know, we do the math for you in terms of 
the market size based on the search volume, the customer acquisition costs, um, you know, how much profit you're going to make per customer. And then we track like each iteration of your landing page and campaign um, to show you how, if your, if your numbers are getting better or not. Because one of the things is that when you run your first test, it's really not, you know, the end all be all. Really what you want to know is uh, the rate of improvement, you know, because your first test is just a baseline. And so you want to know if I'm talking to customers and I'm learning and I'm improving, how quickly are the numbers getting better? You know, sometimes your baseline could be the best numbers you ever get. That's a really bad sign. Um, whereas, um, on the other hand, you could double or triple the performance after the baseline. And that would be a really good sign that, uh, that, that there's more potential in here to, to work with. So, um, let's talk about the, the sort of the current Javelin business today. Do you guys disclose revenue? Um, we don't disclose our current revenue, but, um, we disclose that, uh, like after the first three months of quick MVP, uh, we were doing about 240,000 a year in recurring revenue. Oh, um, and I read somewhere that the LSM workshops were doing about over a million dollars a year. Yeah. Almost 2 million. Wow. Okay, cool. Um, is is there one thing in your business that you're you're most excited about right now as you look as you sort of look towards the rest of 2015? Yeah, so I'm excited about Quick MVP. Um, you know, I never thought it would be this successful actually because going from a project management tool that nobody used and didn't understand to people launch, launching lots of landing pages and campaigns was really amazing. Um, and we're also adding um, interview functionality to the tool, so like interview tracking because. Most of our most of the people who cancel a Quick MVP subscription, and we track this like really religiously, um, is like one of two things. It's like ten percent of people they validated their idea, and they don't need a tool anymore because now they're going to like start the business. And like for that ten percent of people, you know, I'm really happy that they're you know like leaving the tool. It doesn't bother me because um, they're like a successful outcome. Um, and maybe we're going to try and target that later, but it's still just like ten percent. Um, 90% of our cancellations are people who say, I invalidated my idea and, you know, I don't know what to do next. So I'm just going to like take a break and maybe interview some people before coming back and doing another landing page. So, uh, that's one of the reasons why we're introducing, um, uh, customer interviews to the app. And, um, we're also going to be adding, adding, a, a customer interview scoring methodology. So, uh, one of my friends um, is Ben Yaskovitz, who wrote Lean Analytics, and he had what like you know whenever I see like a Lean blog post, like I I immediately like kind of like I've like read everything on it, so I know when like something's like really different and unique and innovative. And he wrote a really innovative post on scoring customer interviews and giving them the quantitative measure. And so we're going to implement something very similar for the interview feature where. Um, you answer you like answer a couple questions about the interview and it'll give you a score of like how big the problem is for that customer. Um, and then, you know, for LSM, you know, um, we have some, some big things we're doing. Um, part of the reason for me moving to the Bay area, um, is to help expand our network here in terms of the resources that we're providing to entrepreneurs. Um, we do also have a really great community as well called lean enterprise. 
which um, I run with uh, another business partner, uh, Michael Gold, who is really a uh, prolific event organizer. And we're, we're, this is a really uh, young community where we have a lot of uh, innovation managers who come and we run unconferences. And I'm really excited about that community as well because, um, you know, I think, um, I think there's a tremendous amount of potential still in the startup world in terms of that. I just don't see enough people using the data-driven lean techniques that um, are out there. But I also think that in the next 10 years, we're going to see a major renaissance in corporate innovation. Because um, when you look at, uh, first of all, if you look at like the data, like corporations are really, really in trouble because they're, uh, over time, the amount of time that like a corporation has spent on the S&P 500, like the most valuable companies, largest companies, it's been decreasing from like 60 years in you know, around 1960, a company would be on the S&P 500 as like most valuable company in the world. Today, it's about 17 years and, it's, and it keeps going down to where, you know, companies that are the most valuable companies we know are falling off the S&P 500 list. And so they see what the startup world is doing. They're like, wow, we really need to figure out how to learn some things from that. And corporate America has an order of magnitude more capital than all of Sand Hill Road. If you look at like the top five uh, corporations from how, how much cash they have, it's 10 times more than all of the dollars that Silicon Valley invests in a single year globally in venture capital. So they have all this money lying around. They don't know how to do, you know, a lot of things that startups know how to do. And, you know, these companies have tremendous influence in the, in the quality of life and global affairs. Um, you know, the reason that like, you know, we, we know like, what the future should be like we've no we've we've had the jetsons you know for a long time and yet our, our daily lives are are very far from that and so i think that as uh corporations begin to use their potential it's a huge opportunity um for entrepreneurs and for people uh that work in large companies um to really make a big difference in the world and then on top of all of that you wrote a book as well in your spare yep. time <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that it's about a, actually been out about a year now, um, which is just based on my frustration working with uh, enterprises and kind of covering some of the basic knowledge that uh, people in the startup world know and understand. That's but that corporations and uh, innovation uh, people are you know consider really hard to accept or it doesn't really make sense to them because the two worlds are really different. But you know the the corporations are trying much more to become like, you know, the startups than, than the other way around. So the book is called The Lean Enterprise, How Corporations Can Innovate Like Startups. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Um, okay, Trevor, it's now time for our lightning round. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I'd like you to answer them as quickly as you can. Are you ready? Yes, ready. All right. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received? Uh, there was two. Um, so two important moments for me. Um, one was an advisor for me told me, focus on one thing. This was about six months before I decided to do LSM full time, doing a bunch of different ventures. He said, focus on one thing. Like, you know, focus all your efforts on the thing that you think uh, is going to get you to where you want to go, be the biggest potential. And I think the other piece of advice is that someone told me is that uh, the only, you know, this is kind of a, a contradictory one because. 
it's it's right in some right ways and wrong other ways. But someone once told me the only wrong reason to do something is for the money. So um, this is an advisor of mine who uh, created a product that like he really regrets because he thought it was going to make him a lot of money. Uh, now I believe that you should you should focus on things that you believe are going to add value to the world, and then after that, figure out how to make money from it. Because I'm a big believer in making money, but the first consideration should be adding value and having an impact. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Um, how to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Uh, it's just a very classic book. And as an entrepreneur, your social skills and working with people is the most important thing. So that book has uh, really uh, helped me a lot. It's helped a lot of people I know. And I try to read it almost every year just to get a refresher. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur? Hard work. I mean, it just comes down to, to, to really hard work ethic. Um, and, you know, in America, I think we're in the U.S., we're lucky because we have this really uh, aggressive work culture. And when I travel around the world, um, um, in some cultures, you know, they don't have that kind of like that, that drive. And like a lot of the entrepreneurs, um, you know, they just need to push themselves a little bit harder and really grit their teeth and, and sink in. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Yeah, my favorite uh, productivity tool is just the philosophy of managing my energy and not my time. Um, I try to be every meeting I take and every interaction or you know everything I try to do, I try to be at peak energy when I'm doing it. And it doesn't matter for me as much about doing something you know, at a specific time of day, it's much more about doing something when I feel my most productive. Um, if you had to start over tomorrow, what type of business or market or opportunity interests you the most? Yeah, so I don't know if uh, if if this would be starting over, but I think um, I'm looking forward to you know getting into investing in the future because I think being an investor is, uh, is a lot easier than being an entrepreneur at times. You know, you don't have to do all the uh, hard day-to-day work and you can really have a big impact in a different way. What's one interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Um, so I was, uh, I originally went to college to wrestle uh, for division one and I got injured and wasn't able to do that. Um, but wrestling is a big, uh, a big part of um, my uh, shapes a lot of my philosophies, and I actually have cauliflower ear, which is like basically uh, when you're a wrestler uh, or a fighter, you you tend to get like a bruise in your ear from like you know head not headbutting, but like you know people hitting you in the in the head and stuff. And it 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 when your ear gets a bruise, it damages your cartilage, and you get like this deformed ear. And so I have that in my right ear, and. It's actually a badge of honor. It looks pretty ugly, but anybody who's been in wrestling, it's like, oh, you got a cauliflower ear? You must be really good. So, Wow. And I think uh, rugby players in England also end up getting those cauliflower ears as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. And finally, uh, what is one of your most important passions outside of your work? Yeah, so everything that I do, including Lean, is oriented around um, you know, education and, and personal transformation and you know, uh, the things that I'm most passionate about are like the skills that can, uh, 
open your opportunity, you know, sphere like magnitudes. So like learning languages is something that I, I'm passionate about. Um, economic development, you know, like I, I really think that um, they say that uh, talent is evenly distributed throughout the world, but uh, opportunity is not. You know, I think there's, I'm really passionate about how can we take uh, really uh, hardworking uh, people who um, don't have opportunities and give them opportunities and kind of arbitrage uh, the labor market. Um, so anything around personal transformation is really a, a passion of mine. Awesome. Those great answers. Trevor, I want to thank you for joining me today and sharing your experiences and insights with our audience. And thank you for letting us get to know you a little better personally as well. Now, if folks want to uh, check out Quick MVP or uh, you want to attend a lean, mach- a lean Startup Machine workshop, you can go to javelin.com. And if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, the best way is definitely on Twitter. Okay. So I'm at, at TO and uh, yeah, just tweet at me. Um, I do try to answer emails. Uh, my email is just Trevor at Javelin, but I get a, you know, ever since I raised money, I get like all these people trying to sell me real estate and trying to sell me, <laughs> you know, all these like HR services, stuff like that. So I get a lot of spam and if anyone knows how to, how to get rid of that, uh, let me know. <laughs> there you go. Maybe there's another business opportunity there yeah. for somebody. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Trevor. And I wish you continued success. Thank you so much, Omer. Cheers.